The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. And as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel today, we're going to look at verses 22 through 27, which I think is um, just one of these intensely interesting parts and an intensely practical part of the Scriptures. And today I'd like to begin a a little mini-series, just uh, fitting this in to this passage where we'll talk about the duties of dual citizenship. And so I'm going to take four messages to speak on this passage, and I want to talk to you about the congruity of being both citizens of heaven and citizens of this world and what God expects from us as both. So I'd like us to read these scriptures together, and then we'll get into the comments, and I think you'll recognize very quickly why that our subject is citizenship. So if you'd stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse number 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day... He shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, that take, and give unto them for me and thee. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for everyone who's come to hear. Lord, help us to learn from these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the common comments that you'll hear about the Bible and preachers and preaching is that whenever we deliver a sermon, speak from the Word of God, that we have to be relative to the modern here. That we have to choose out something that's really relative to people that fits the way that they're living in the world today in their everyday lives. And I have sort of a a sore spot When I hear things like that, because I don't really like to hear complaints that the Word of God, when we read it and study it and just expound it, that it isn't its best teacher. I think the Word of God speaks for itself many times, and even though I do have the responsibility of explaining things to you and uh, telling you what the Word of God means, I don't think that you're really growing as Christians and as church members if I have to take the Bible and spoon-feed you with everything that, uh, that the Scripture says. But I, I realize it is my responsibility to teach you the Word of God and tell you what things mean. And we're in a, p- a place of Scripture here that... Um, I'll explain it, but it really starts to make its own application. And we really learn what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples. We have an example in these scriptures how the Word of God is abundantly practical for everyday living. 
Jesus had a, a lesson to teach to his disciples and to us about being good followers of Jesus Christ, of him, and also about being good citizens of the country in which we live. Now, I hope that all of you are believers. I do hope that all of you are saved, that you know that you're saved. And if you are saved, not only are you citizens of this country, but the Bible teaches you are also citizens of a heavenly country. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now, this is really a wonderful fact for all of us to realize that although we're not in heaven now, and I think you're very much aware of that, this is not heaven, we're not in heaven now, but we are as sure for heaven as if we were already there. That when you receive Christ as your Savior, you were granted citizenship in the kingdom of God, and you are a member of that heavenly city, you own the heavenly city, and that's where you're going to live for all of eternity. The scripture says that we are citizens of heaven. It doesn't say that we're waiting to become citizens. It doesn't say that we have to wait to receive our papers. It doesn't say that we have to pass a test first and we're waiting for the the final approval. But it tells us that the moment that you receive Christ as Savior, that right then you become a citizen of heaven. But you also know that you're citizens of the United States. Most of you are, at least, I think. You're citizens of the United States. And I don't know any Christian... Any, or any American that became a Christian and had to give up citizenship in this country. Although we have a citizenship that's never going to pass away, forever we're going to be citizens of heaven, we still have to realize that we live in this world and God has certain, certain responsibilities for us to fulfill. He has a way that he wants us to live. He has things that he wants us to do. And God requires that we be good citizens both of heaven and of this country. So this is a very practical matter that Jesus teaches Peter in the passage, and uh, he speaks about what God requires in the area of citizenship. A few weeks ago, we had a question in our Sunday morning forum class that's really a, a good example of the challenges that we face in trying to balance out the duties of being heaven's subjects and at the same time being subjects of this country. And the question was about Christians owning guns. There's so much violence in our, in our country and there's so much talk about restricting the right to own a gun and taking away that right. And the question we might ask, is it really right for Christians to own guns? And some would say, well, that's a, that's a constitutional question. It's not really a Bible question. But actually, I disagree with that. The Constitution gives a, the right for Americans to own guns, but it doesn't answer the question, is it right for Christians or Americans to own guns. The Constitution doesn't tell us about the morality of it. So it's really a subject that you might want to consider. It's not one that we're going to talk about today. Uh, That took us too long. We discussed it for quite a while in our forum class. But I use that just by way of illustration that we have challenges that we face in trying to be citizens of both countries. 
Now, for this country, for the United States of America, we have a document called the Constitution, and that has all the responsibilities and the privileges of our citizenship outlined in that document. The Constitution is the foundation of our government, and without it, we're just a bunch of people that have different ideas about how things should be done. But we don't have the luxury of deciding how we think things should be done. Rather, that is given that those rights and what we're supposed to do is in the Constitution. And we use the Constitution as the foundation of our government, of our country, to tell us what we can do as American citizens. And likewise, as citizens of heaven, we have a document that is the foundation of our citizenship. And that document is the Bible. It's the Word of God. And we can't be good citizens of heaven, of the kingdom of God, unless we follow the requirements that are given in the Bible. And as citizens of heaven, neither do we have the luxury of just deciding what's right or do whatever we want that's good in our own eyes. The Bible actually says that that is a, that is a disastrous thing for people to try. The Bible says that a person has a way that seems right to him, but it's the way of death. And then it also says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That God is the one that directs our steps and he does it through the Holy Scriptures and that's our rule of faith and practice. Now we come to this scripture and we find the Lord Jesus teaching Peter about dual citizenship. So although by faith we have become citizens of heaven, we still have responsibilities as earth's citizens. Now this, this is really an important subject. And it's why that I want to take some time with it. And if you're concerned that when I preach I'm not really practical enough, well, you're going to get a heavy dose of practicality in the next few weeks. So all of that, all of those things, that, that's just kind of introduction to what I want to talk to you about. And um, we're probably not going to get much further than this introductory material today. But we'll look at this, and, and towards the end of the message, I'm going to give you an overview of the passage, and we'll see how it is practical. So let's start with this. You, you have just one point on your listening sheet today, and I want to make sure that you get this one point. Then the next time when we talk about this, we'll, we'll add some more things to it. Number one is God's revelation of the cross for citizenship. That there is a way that you become a citizen of heaven, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 22 and 23, we find Jesus reminding the disciples again, as he had often, about the necessity of his death. He was in the final few months of his ministry on the earth, and everything that we read about here going on towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew is preparation for when Christ will go to the cross. And he's training his disciples about how to be ambassadors for him when he leaves this world. They're the ones that are going to be left to teach the other people the principles of God and teach people about salvation and what they need to know. And likewise, I would remind you that the Bible teaches that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ right now, that we are also ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says that, and we have responsibilities. It's very important for all of us to represent Christ as good citizens of his heavenly kingdom. So the disciples were being trained to take over this duty 
And every time that you read the Bible, and whenever you come to church, and whenever you listen to the preaching, whenever you study the Scriptures, you are also being trained to be an ambassador for the kingdom of Christ. Now, as you know, the disciples had a very hard time uh, hearing what Jesus said really taking it into their brains that Jesus would have to die. They didn't understand how that there could be a king and a kingdom and Jesus was going to establish his kingdom and yet he was going to die. Well, we we know now, we we ask a, a better question perhaps, how can there be a kingdom if Christ did not die? Because it was absolutely essential. Entrance into the kingdom of God is based on this vital truth. And it was critical to the triumph of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom that he overcome all forces that oppose him. The king cannot rule unless he puts all enemies under his feet. Hebrews says, but this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. We learn that the crucifixion was absolutely necessary because through the cross of Christ, sin, death, and hell were conquered. Through the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. And the glorious resurrection of Christ proved that no powers of darkness could overcome him. So our safety and our security as citizens of heaven rest on that sure foundation. The gospel is this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that is the constitution of heaven. It's the basis, it's the real reason that we can think about heaven and know heaven and go to heaven because Jesus made us perfect and able to live in that holy home of God. Now earlier, Jesus said that he must be crucified. And in this text, he kind of takes that just a little bit of a step further because the Greek here includes an emphatic about his death. He says, the son of man shall be betrayed into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And that emphatic in the Greek language shows that this was a divine decree. That everything that happened to Jesus was his clear intention, the clear intention of God. So the cross is not a secondary plan. Did plan A for the establishment of the kingdom somehow go wrong? And so the cross becomes a secondary plan and a way to get out? No. It it was the intention from the very beginning. God sent Christ into the world to die. And the Son of God voluntarily accepted that assignment because that's the only way that we could have citizenship in his kingdom. And that's very important for us to realize, to think about, to tell people about because there are so many people today that want to leave the cross out. You listen to much of the preaching in other places and they don't like to talk about the cross. They don't like to talk about a person's sin. They don't want to talk about hell but rather they present Jesus as a good example to follow. Someone who really believed in a cause strongly enough that he was willing to give his life. And so that's the reason that we follow him, that we need to be people that are just really concerned about helping others and being somebody that really is strongly involved in the cause. And if we have to give our lives, so be it. That's not what the cross is about. 
The cross is about what Christ did to suffer for our sins. We are sinners against God. That fact has to be, has to be just driven down into people's minds that we're without Christ, we're lost, we're on our way to hell, and Christ came to die for our sins. So this was the intention. There's a kingdom to be won. There are citizens to be made. And this is God's method of doing it. Let me quote to you from one able commentator who said, The public display of Jesus in his bloody death as a divine satisfaction fulfilled God's justice so that he might justly forgive sinners. No kingdom citizenship exists apart from the cross. No sonship through God adopting us into his family can take place without the cross. To put it plain and simple, God could not forgive and save anyone apart from the satisfaction of his eternal justice that required eternal damnation from every son of Adam. Christ felt the agony of God's eternal justice for us at the cross. He had to be killed in such a way, the innocent one on behalf of the eternally guilty, so that the guilty might be declared righteous and now citizens of God's kingdom forever. And do you know the irony of all that? When we preach about the cross of Christ, that we call it the gospel, and the gospel means good news, and you think, how could this ever be good news? How can the cruel death of the cross be good news? Well, it can only be good news for this, and that is this is the way that we come into God's kingdom. This is how we become citizenship. Christ won our citizenship through his death and resurrection. Now, I kind of believe that puts things in a different light. You know, as Americans, we we all hate war. None of us want to think about sending our sons and daughters to the other side of the world to fight. Nobody wants their children to be in Afghanistan or Iran uh, taking the chance that someone's going to kill them. But we know sometimes war is necessary that our freedoms are won by those that were willing to sacrifice their lives in order to preserve our rights as citizens of this country. And war is never a pleasant thought. But at the same time, many of us, not many of us would say, don't go to war. Let's just lay down our arms. Let's just let the enemy have our country because we don't want to fight. Most of us aren't old enough to remember World War II. Some of you are. Most in here are probably not old enough to remember the Korean War. Many of you are not old enough to remember the Vietnam War. But I know that you remember this. I think everybody in here surely remembers this. Just 12 years ago, 9-11. We remember that. And I remember when President Bush was standing up on the rubble of the World Trade Center and he said, the people that did this will be brought to justice. Now, you may, you may not have liked the way things turned out after that, but there wasn't a person anywhere, I don't think, hardly a person, not a real patriot of the United States, who would say, let's just let that thing go. Let's just let it, let it, let it be as it is, and let's don't worry about who did this. Now, I think everybody was prepared to go to war then. We wanted satisfaction for that. War is not pleasant, but sometimes it's necessary. And did you know this? In order for us to have the freedom of the soul, that war is necessary. And the war that was necessary is the war that Jesus Christ fought on the cross where he conquered the powers of Satan and he conquered sin and death and hell. He did that on the cross. That war was absolutely necessary. 
Now we go to war here and we fight for the temporal things. We fight for a time that we're going to live in our physical lives in the United States of America. But the stakes for your soul are much higher than that because we're not talking about physical life. We're talking about where you will spend eternity, all eternity for your entire existence. Now I'll say this much, that, that it's honorable, I think, for citizens of our country to fight to preserve it. I think it's honorable, and there's nothing wrong with Christians being a part of our armed forces. That's not a violation of Scripture. But the freedom of the soul is so much bigger than a world war. This is a cosmic war. This is a war between the unseen forces of darkness, not, not us with our puny capabilities of our armies trying to fight an enemy, No, we're trying to fight someone who wars against the soul. So we're talking about the eternal destiny. So the cross is horrible. There's no way that you could make it pretty. There's no way to make it nice. And the cross was war, the worst kind. It was the most intense war that was ever fought because Jesus Christ had hell unleashed upon him. He hung on the cross. His father turned his back on him. There was no relief offered from the death of the cross. You see, Christ cannot be saved and you be saved. So they mocked Jesus when he died and they said, come down from the cross, save yourself and us. But he couldn't do both. He can't come down from the cross because that would be surrender and that would be defeat. So if you want a kingdom and you want a king and you want heaven, and if you want to be free from hell, then Jesus must go to the cross, and he must stay on that cross until he was dead. And because he died, you're free from the penalty of sin. Your freedom was won by the cross, and by faith in him and what he did for you, you have the rights and privileges of citizenship. There is a heavenly country, folks, And we can be citizens of it because of the uh, the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, someone a long time ago said war is hell. And they spoke of war and hell in a metaphor, and they didn't really know the half of it. The war for the soul is hell. It was hell because Jesus suffered hell. And we think about this country and the people that died for it. Our citizenship was won on battlefields. Our country was won on battlefields and battlefields of Lexington and Concord and Yorktown and Bunker Hill. But the war for our soul was fought and won by Jesus Christ on the cross that stood on Calvary's hill. Now, folks, all of what I'm just telling you, that's the basis for the teaching of this section. It starts with the cross, and we can't talk about citizenship in heaven except we deal with the cross. But there's so many people that think there is another way. They want to go around the cross. They want to find some other way that they can get to God as if the cross itself was just a trifling mistake. You know, when I hear the leaders of our country say things like they say, I'm appalled at their attitude towards false religion. President Bush, who was supposed to be a born-again Christian, said that Islam is another way to God. President Obama doesn't know the difference between a Sikh and the Savior. He doesn't know the difference between an imam and the immortal one. 
and there are religious leaders, and there are evangelists that say that if you just are sincere in your religion, doesn't matter what you believe, you can still be a citizen of heaven. And they would all be better to say that this country could have sat on its hands under the oppression of Hirohito and Hitler if their patriotism was no better than their theology, we'd all be saying, Heil Hitler, instead of my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Now, you can't have heaven without the cross. You can't have it except for the victory that was won at the cross. You can't have heaven without spiritual warfare, without a war that was fought and won by Jesus Christ. Now, today, we have peace in our hearts And Jesus promised one day that the peace of our hearts would become a lasting peace over all of the earth, a physical peace that comes to the entire world. And that's when his kingdom comes to the earth. And then, after that, we have the eternal peace of heaven. All of that's accomplished by the victory of the cross. Paul said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we have it, in the word of God, that the way that we claim citizenship to heaven is through the cross of Christ. And so this passage begins by Jesus reiterating once again that the death of the cross is a vital necessity, that without it there is no kingdom. The disciples didn't understand that, but he wasn't going to bring a kingdom without the cross. And so you're sitting here today and you're listening to me talk about heaven because Jesus went to the cross. So never trample his blood under your feet and say that there is some other way that you can get to heaven. Now I'm going to take the last few minutes to to go through this story and this will set us up next time as we discuss human government and what God expects from his people as being citizens of heaven and also of this world. And the story is really just a very simple one, and it leads to some practical truths. Now notice verse number 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Now remember that Jesus and his disciples had been in the far northern part of Israel, They were in the area of Caesarea Philippi, and there on one of those mountains in the range of Mount Hermon, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. Those three disciples saw Jesus change. He he, he became shining white in his appearance. They heard the God, God the Father, speak from heaven. And there Jesus was gloriously transfigured and they were able to see a glimpse of his coming kingdom. They were able to see Christ in his glory. But then they had to come down from the mountain. And as they did, they were greeted by the suffering that was in the valley. They'd been up on the mountaintop and there was ecstasies there. There was the, the, just the presence of God that was there. But the cross was the destination. They couldn't stay on that mountain. So they came down from the mountain and they found once again sin and trouble and heartache and sickness. And then Jesus cast a demon out of a young boy. And in the process he taught his disciples about faith and dependence on God for all time and for all things. So for a long time Jesus and the disciples had been away from their home base in Capernaum. And so they returned there, and while Jesus was not with Peter, he was in another place 
one of the collectors of Jewish taxes came to Peter. Now, since Jesus and the disciples had been gone for such a long time, their taxes hadn't been paid. Some of you may be familiar with that, not paying your taxes. Well, it's not a, of course, it's not a, an intentional thing for them to do. They were just away. So there's some disagreement when people come to the passage and they think, well, this was a planned encounter that these Jews tried to trip Jesus up and so they brought up the matter of taxation. We don't really know whether it was or whether it wasn't, but still the question is asked, does Jesus pay taxes? The tax that's in question is a temple tax. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses instituted this tax as a part of the law and the purpose of it was to collect and take care of the tabernacle, the upkeep of the tabernacle, and also for the upkeep of the priest. And when I think about our recent financial woes in our church, uh, that, that just reminds me of that, that people do need to give as they, as they should give. And that, part was, that was part of the law. Now, the interesting thing about it, I think, is there, there was no person that could really get out of the tax. Now, I'm talking about those that are, that are uh, required to pay. That would be the men between 20 and 50 years old. They had to pay this tax. No one was excused from paying the tax. No matter how rich you were, how poor you were, how in between you were, you had to pay this tax because that's how they kept up the tabernacle and the priest. Now, the same principle is carried over in the New Testament under the New Covenant as God's people are required to take care of the house of God and to take care of the ministers of God. So essentially, God's still telling us that there is nobody that's exempt, whether rich or poor, whether in between, all are responsible to help with the upkeep of God's house. Now, these people that came to collect the taxes were, were not the publicans that you read about in the scriptures, not the ones that had betrayed their own people and were collecting the Roman taxes. No, this is a Jewish tax. And the Romans allowed the Jews to collect this tax. So what they would do is they would send out people from Jerusalem. They would send out men to collect the taxes from their people for the upkeep of the, of the temple and for the priest. Now, you remember that everybody that's in, in, in Israel, all of them are obligated to the temple. That's the place of worship. No matter where you were, Jerusalem is the center, the temple is there. And so everybody has their mind on that worship that goes on in Jerusalem. Now, another interesting thing about this tax is that it's, it was, a, it was a, a two drachma tax. Two drachma is the equivalent of a half shekel in Hebrew coinage. That's what was required in the Old Testament, that everybody had to pay a half shekel. It amounted to about two days' wages. But at the time of Jesus, uh, the Greeks did not mint the two drachma coin. That was called a didrachma. They no longer minted that coin because of inflation. And so what you had to do in order to pay the tax, you would have to transfer, or you would have to exchange, I should say, uh, your money into Hebrew coinage, so that you could pay the tax. Well, it's just like going to another country that uh, when you exchange money, you usually lose when you're exchanging money. And they had a big business going on at the temple in exchanging Greek money for Hebrew so this tax could be paid. And they were making a lot of money over that. So rather than have to pay the exchange rates at the temple, what people would do is that two men would go together and they would pay the tax. 
Now, I thought that was kind of interesting because what Jesus instructed Peter to do here was to go to the Sea of Galilee and he would throw in a hook, he would raise a fish from out of the sea, and when that fish opened its mouth, he said, it'll have a piece of money to pay the tax for me and for you. And and the actual word that's used there is stator. The piece of money is a stator, and that was the exact equivalent that two men had to pay in order to pay the tax. A marvelous thing that Jesus did. So Peter's approached by this tax collector, and he was asked, does your master pay tribute? And, And in verse 25, Peter said, yes. Yes, of course he pays his taxes. Doesn't everybody? Hold on to that thought for just a minute. We'll come back in just a minute. But Peter said, yes, and I don't think that he lied about it. And he said, yes, because most likely he'd seen Jesus pay it before. He was now in the third year of following Jesus, and this was a yearly tax, so it would have come up two times before. So Peter probably saw Jesus pay the tax at some time or another. It's no brainer for him to answer. Yes, he pays his taxes. And when Peter got back to where Jesus was, and that was probably Peter's house in Capernaum, Jesus knew where he had been and what had happened and what he said. And he knew this, of course, because he's God. He knows everything about you, knows everything you say, everything you've ever done. He's well aware of all of that. So he knew what Peter had said. And so when Peter came into the house, Jesus was waiting to give him a lesson. Now, if you look at verse 25, Peter said, well, yes, Jesus pays taxes. And then look what follows. They ask, does he pay the temple tax? He saith, verse 25, yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute of their own children or of strangers? Now, Peter, or Jesus said to Peter, let me ask you something. When the kings of the earth collect their taxes, who do they take their taxes from? Do they take it from their own children? Or do they take it from the subjects of their kingdom? And Peter says in verse 26, well, they take it from strangers, meaning they take it from their subjects. And then Jesus replied, well, then are the children free? In other words, the children of the king are not required to pay taxes. Now, here's the meaning behind what Jesus is saying here. He's very clearly declaring his deity. And he's showing to Peter that it's absurd for him to pay the temple tax because he's the Lord of the temple. The tabernacle and the temple, they were built because of him. They were to worship him. They exalted him. It's for his glory. And so paying the tax was like paying himself. Doesn't really make much sense. But notice something else that he he says here. He speaks of the children. Now, the king obviously doesn't pay a tax for himself. He, He collects taxes for his upkeep and for who else? Well, he collects it for his family. He doesn't take taxes from his family. So the people support the royal family. What Jesus tells Peter here is that all of his children are part of his family. They are the sons of God. And God has prepared a place for them. And God has everything worked out for their benefit. So there's no such thing as God's people taking, paying taxes in heaven or working in heaven or any kind of labor that goes on in heaven. The king has provided all for us. So there's no burden for us to bear. Now, I said, hold on just a minute, because Peter says, yes, Jesus pays taxes. Doesn't everybody pay their taxes? 
And the fact is, Jesus didn't have to pay the temple tax. He's the king. But Jesus paid the tax anyway. And that's a good lesson for us. If he has to, if he paid the tax, whatever would make us think that we're exempt from what we do here on earth in, in, in taking care of God's house and his kingdom. How could we ever be exempt? Jesus paid it. You have to pay it too. Well, we come here, excuse me, to the point of Jesus' teaching on citizenship. He says, I am the king, and the king and his children do not pay the taxes. But that's not all that he said. He goes on. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Now, Jesus was truly exempt from paying the tax. I think we understand why. I've just explained it. But everything that he was teaching his disciples and, and all the meaning of, uh, of the different sayings and, and talking about his kingship and all of these things, those were not well understood by the Jews. They rejected the fact that Jesus was a king. So they wouldn't have thought that Jesus was exempt from paying the tax. So Jesus said, let's go ahead and pay the tax anyway. Because it's better for us not to offend them. They're not going to understand why I don't pay the tax. Now, if Jesus hadn't paid the tax, they would think that he had no regard for the temple. He has no regard for the laws of God. And so not paying the tax would be a bad testimony, and it wouldn't have served any purpose for the cause of the gospel. Now, we're going to look at that statement more at a later time, but we we need to know this, that, that... we have Christian liberties, and there are certain things that you can do, but there are things that you ought not to do, even, even if in, the, in those things by themselves are, not, are, are okay to do. Don't do them if somebody is going to misunderstand or if it hurts your testimony. Stay away from some things, even though you might have the liberty to do them. So you don't want to hurt the gospel. You don't want to hurt your testimony. The glory of God is more important than your priorities. Now, one last thing before we finish here today. Jesus told Peter, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and you'll pull up a fish, and in that fish's mouth, there will be the exact amount needed to pay the tax. So evidently, Jesus didn't have the money to pay the tax. He wasn't like the TV evangelist. He wasn't carrying around a big pot of money and all the seed faith money that he collected. He had no money to pay the tax. So he sent Peter to the sea for a miracle. And you know that you need to think about that when you have problems with finances, when you think there's no way I'm going to get out of this, when you think there's no way that I'm going to be able to make it, that Jesus, that God can provide miracles or that God can make sure that you're taken care of. David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. You are a child of the king. You are a citizen of his country. You have citizenship right now in heaven. And the king never forsakes his children. Keep those thoughts in mind. And we'll come back next week and we'll look at this text a little more closely, or a little closer, and we'll see more about responsibilities of being citizens of two, world, two worlds. But I want to ask you something before we close today. I want to ask you this. Have you actually been to the cross? Have you been there? Do you know what Jesus did for you at the cross? He won your freedom. 
he, he enabled you to be free. I mean, he fought a great battle and he defeated his enemies. He died, he rose from the dead, and the resurrection was the seal of Christ's victory. And today, if you don't know Christ, you can be a part of that victorious kingdom. You trust him, you believe that he died to take away your sins, and then you can become a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. So Paul said, for our conversation, and the word actually means citizenship, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And then in Ephesians, Paul said, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we come now and well, we thank you for what Jesus did at the cross. How important it is for us to see that so clearly that the only way that anybody can be saved is because of what you did on the cross of Calvary. If there's someone here today who hasn't trusted you as Savior, they haven't been to the cross to see what was done for them there, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their hearts to make them realize that they are sinners, that there is a penalty to be paid for sin. God will, will bring justice, uh, justice upon those who have sinned. And there's only one way we can escape the wrath of God, and that is through the cross of Christ and what he did for us there. Lord, open our hearts, open people's hearts to the gospel. And then for your servants, we just pray, Lord, that all of us would be good citizens of heaven in everything that we do, good citizens of this world, and also good citizens of our heavenly home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.